We have just had read to us Daniel chapter 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. We have been prepared for receiving the Word of God from 2 Peter chapter 3. Let us turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You just had some scriptures read to you that most do not understand today. Most did understand 150 years ago. But due to continued error and the growth of error and men turning away their ears from the truth to fables, most do not know anything about Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7, as Chris introduced it, described four earthly kingdoms that would rise, the first of which was already in place when Daniel wrote. And that was the Babylonian or Chaldean empire of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Then after that would come the Medes and the Persians, Cyrus the Persian taking the city of Babylon in one night. That was the bear that rose up on one side because the Medes were greater in the beginning and the Persians greater in the end. And all the little phrases there can be easily identified from history. Not from the future, from history. Daniel 7 is not future. Daniel 7 is history. After that came the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great being described as a leopard with wings on his back because no one ever conquered so quickly because dominion was given to him by the God of heaven to overthrow the Medes and the Persians. He died in the prime of his life at the age of 33, and his kingdom was divided to his four generals, as anyone past the third grade that has read history knows. The fulfillment of that verse. And what what empire followed the Greek empire? At the battle of Actium in 30 B.C., when the Greeks were overthrown, when Cleopatra, one of the descendants of the Ptolemaic segment of the Greek Empire, was defeated by Caesar Augustus. And so we have the Roman Empire. That Roman Empire in 476 A.D. was overthrown by the Visigoths, and it degenerated into ten horns, or ten little kingdoms, which are still to this day considered the kingdoms of Europe or the European Union which is having its struggles these days, subsidizing those financial idiots called Greece. If you read the news at all, poor Germany that works hard and saves hard, and poor England that works hard and saves hard, has to subsidize people that don't know how to do either. The remnants of Alexander the Great are are a mocking object in today's world. But the Roman Empire degenerated after 476 A.D. into the ten kingdoms of Europe, and out of those kingdoms arose another little kingdom that was different from all the rest, and it had a big mouth that said a lot of blasphemous things. And it would endure until the time of the Lord Jesus Christ coming. And that is the papacy of Rome. That is the Pope of Rome. That is Pope Frank and his blasphemous 
idiocy of the last couple of weeks telling the world that we all need to use our civil authority and power and financial might to stop global warming and the rest of the junk that comes out of his mouth from his pajamas. He is the blasphemer. Please think that in 2 Thessalonians 2 that Eric read to us, it was he would pretend himself to be God and above all that is called God. But remember, we live in a society where no one believes there is a God anymore. So how does that fit? Because for the last 1,500 years, 1,260 of tormenting persecution of Christians, the popes of Rome considered themselves equal to or greater than God, and there was no salvation outside the Roman Catholic Church. Shane read to us in the second half of Daniel chapter 7 about that little horn making war with the saints of God for 1260 years. That was described there as time, one, times, two, and a half a time. That is three and a half. Three and a half is also defined in the book of Revelation as 42 months. And guess how many months there are in three and a half years? 42 months. And how many days are there in 42 months? 1,260, because that is what 42 times 30 equals. And those are the three time periods used in the Bible to describe the, the power and authority of the Roman Catholic Church over the world. They were called the Holy Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was destroyed. It had a deadly wound and it came back to life in the papal Roman Empire. Our fathers all knew this. The martyrs that died at the hands of Rome for 1260 years all knew this. They did not go to movie theaters and watch Left Behind. They didn't listen to men that didn't know anything about prophecy. Tim LaHaye's a novelist. He doesn't know anything about the Bible. He can't understand Daniel chapter 7. He doesn't have a clue about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it's not because of our intellect or because of our ability or diligence or faithfulness that we know anything. It is all by the grace of the living God. He has opened our eyes and shown us things that all our fathers understood. So we are not in a minority when you view us from history. We are only in a minority when you view us today. Because we are holding fast and not moving away from the faith of our fathers. Jude chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that we are to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And it was delivered and it was easily understood. That man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is the popes of Rome. They sit in a temple of God. What is a temple of God in the New Testament? It's a church. They sit in a church and profess that they are God and that they are above God. And when did they come into place? After there was a great falling away from apostolic doctrine. Eric read to you that two things had to happen before Jesus Christ could come back. There had to be a great falling away, (coughs) which is a great apostasy from apostolic truth, and then the man of sin had to be revealed. And he's been revealed. And it says that that man of sin would not be revealed for a period of time because something was withholding it from being revealed. And those were the Caesars of Rome. Before the Caesars were taken out of the way by the Visigoths, how in the world could the Bishop of Rome take authority over the known world? You say, 
Did people understand? All of them understood that in the past. All of them understood that in the past. They understood that in the past before there was ever a Roman Catholic church. They knew that Paul's veiled language in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 was to avoid getting the Thessalonians all killed by saying Caesar needs to be taken out of the way. Okay. It wasn't my intent this morning, but I did want to, I want you to appreciate what you had read to you and that we understand it. And if you don't understand it, there's a little blue book back here in the church library. It's called Great Prophecies of the Bible. Please go take one, take two, take as many as are there. And I'm asking the keeper of that book to bring another 20 or 30 and put them on that shelf. Those books are free. Take them home and read that little book. Go to section chapter 4 where it will show you and tell you about Daniel chapter 7 and how our fathers in the faith for the last 2,000 years have understood exactly what's meant by it. When you see that monstrosity called the Vatican in Rome and a man gets up in his pajamas with his crown on and ascends up to the holy altar of the Roman Catholic Church, and you see way up on the wall, way up on the wall, a hundred feet off the surface, a throne sat, the chair of St. Peter, they say. When that Pope speaks ex cathedra, which means from the bishop's seat, he is infallible. He speaks like God. Well, we know that that's, none of that is true. And we have the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ can't wait to come. Do you know why He's waiting? For us to have this service today and to get serious about the Lord, if we're not already, and we should be. But He is coming, and He is coming soon. And what did Daniel say? He's going to cast that little horn into the burning flame. That is the beast of Revelation. That is the false prophet of Revelation. They're going to be cast into the burning flame. Now we come to 2 Peter chapter 3. I gave you the introduction to this chapter last Lord's Day. We did not make progress into its verses. If you want to hear a sermon about the importance of remembering the Lord's second coming, go back to last week's sermon. We are going to drive, dive straight into the content of this third chapter. The chapter is very easy to understand. The chapter is very simple and it's very powerful and weighty. It may be divided after the ninth verse, which is very convenient in that there are nine verses in the first section and nine verses in the second section. The entire chapter is about the second coming of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to His promise that He would come back as He went away from us. The first nine verses describe the scoffers that try to say he's not coming back and overthrow them by arguments of history, logic, divine definitions, and divine explanation. It is a powerful nine verses. And it demolishes preterism. For those of you that do not remember what preterism is, it is a field, a school of prophetic interpretation that maintains all Bible prophecies were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. All prophecies. Not most. A full preterist believes that all prophecies were fulfilled in 70 A.D. Jesus Christ came back 
Literally and bodily, there was a resurrection of the dead. The devil was cast into the lake of fire. The great judgment, the great day of judgment took place, and we are in the new heaven and the new earth now. That's preterism. And it is infecting conservative churches across America. It's a small voice, but they are all very rabid about their folly. And if they get in a church, they will tear a church up. We ourselves have had to deal with that three years ago in 2012. That is preterism. This chapter demolishes it. This chapter demolishes it by three steps. And I'm going to say this a number of times. First of all, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is connected to the destruction of the physical and material universe as we now know it. No destruction of the physical and material universe took place in 70 A.D. It's still here. An oak tree is still an oak tree. And a redwood that is here today and is tall enough was here then. If I have, if I, if I remember my trees, this, this ain't Solomon in your pulpit. You know, in 1 Kings chapter 4, Solomon could talk about trees. That's what it says, and the kings of the earth would come to listen to him talk about trees, but don't ask me very much. Listen, I got oak tree out of my mouth, and I think they have acorns. There was no change in the physical universe. Do you know what's beautiful about this passage? The connection between the destruction of the physical world by the flood being tied to the destruction of the physical world by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very key. They try to go into this passage and turn the new heaven and the new earth to being the gospel of the New Testament compared to the old heaven and old earth of the Mosaic system of worship. That's what they do. Some very great men in history do that. The the chaplain for Oliver Cromwell was named Dr. John Owen. He's one of the greatest theologians to ever come out of England in the 17th century. Ah. And one of his books helped change my life by showing me the scriptures back when I was a late teenager called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. But when it comes to 2 Peter 3, he lost his mind and thought that this is describing the changeover from the Old Testament form of worship to the New Testament form of worship in this terminology. But the flood wasn't describing some metaphorical change from patriarchal worship to mosaic worship or any other change in worship. The flood actually destroyed the living world and everything that had the, the breath of life in it. And so by the first argument, the first argument to take apart a preterist with this chapter is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is associated with a very definite dissolution of the physical and material heaven and earth and giving us a new heaven and a new earth, physically and materially. Second, in that eighth verse, we are given a divine definition of the passage of time that God's use of time is not our use and it is stuck right where you would want it to be to say, wait a minute, preterist. God doesn't have to come right now because a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And notice how that eighth verse starts. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. In any discussion with any kind of a person that is trying to say the the second coming of Christ isn't going to happen or it happened a long time ago like the preterists say, you, this is an argument you must use and you are expected to use 
God's use of time is not ours. If something is going to happen two days from now, could you say that that is at hand? Would you say that is going to occur quickly? In two days? Does that allow us to say that things prophesied by the apostles 2,000 years ago are still coming quickly? On what basis? The divine definition of the passage of prophetic time from that eighth verse, because a thousand years is as one day and one day as a thousand years. You say, that almost sounds idiotic. No, it sounds divine. Because I'm only going to live 58 plus a few days. I can't think in terms of a thousand years. But the Lord does, and He gave us this little hint right here to take apart preterism. Their whole argument is based on verses like 1 Peter 4-7, Revelation 1-1, Revelation 1-3, that use the words at hand. The day of the Lord is at hand. Oh, and they just go nuts. The day of the Lord at hand should be understood by those first people that read the first original coming from the pen of the apostles that it was right there. But see, the Lord stuck in verse 8 telling us in this chapter that one day with Him could be like a thousand years to us. And we know that it hasn't come yet, don't we? Because we don't have a new material and physical heaven and earth. Do you know how much you're learning just by thinking about the words of this passage? Third reason, third thing. First of all, Jesus Christ's coming will involve a complete changing of the physical heaven and earth. That's in verse 7. The world that now is, the physical world that now is, as compared to the physical world of Noah's day that is back there in verse 6. Okay? That's argument number one. Argument number two is, God told us that you preterists would get too excited about at-hand verses and quickly verses, and so He gave us verse 8 to tell us that a thousand years with Him is like a day to us, so if something happens in 2,000 years, it still was at hand because it was only two days to God. The third argument is in verse 9, and that's why it's taking so long. And that's the one we want to be the most excited about. The reason it's taking so long is explained in verse 9 that God is long-suffering because He wants to get the whole class and family of God's elect regenerated before He comes to get everyone in heaven that is supposed to be there and everyone that is written in the book of life there. That's why He's taking His time. Praise the Lord for that. Because we're 2,000 years later. I want to tell you something. If the Lord came quickly and at hand, like the preterists say, you're going to hell. Because you're outside His second coming. You're outside His long suffering. But we're inside it, brethren, because He hasn't come yet. Okay, that's jumping ahead for sure. Second Peter chapter 3. Let me read eight, nine verses to you. This second epistle, beloved... I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, 
and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen and amen. Almighty God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, open our eyes and ears and open my mouth and open our hearts together that we will see, hear, and understand and embrace the truth of your word. Every word of God is pure. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And every word that is before us, we do believe. And we will bet our lives in this world and in the next on those words by faith you have given us through Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. This second epistle, Peter wrote two epistles. Your Bible has two epistles by Peter, doesn't it? Because of this verse. Explaining that fact to you. This second epistle, beloved. He used the word beloved about his audience four times in this chapter alone. It's very special. When the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back and deliver us out of a fiery furnace that's going to burn up this world, being called beloved is a fitting title because we are all blood brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved by Him. And so He uses beloved four times. You know, all geographical distinctions disappear when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to pull us out of a burning world. It's not going to be a burning city like the Chicago fires of a time back. It's going to be a burning world and we're going to be delivered out of it. And we're going to be delivered out of it because we have been made accepted according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, we have been made accepted in the Beloved. God said of His Son, this is my Beloved Son. We have been made acceptable to God by God choosing us in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus dying for us so that we are acceptable to God and that is the basis for eternal life. That is the basis for salvation. It is not us accepting God. Those That terminology is not found anywhere in the Bible. It is God accepting us when we stand before Him. It will be Him accepting us through Christ because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so we're called Beloved. And so Peter uses it often here. The second epistle, Beloved, I now write unto you. I write unto you. Who are these people? Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. Because we'll know who these people were. The specific first audience of Peter's two epistles. They were Jews scattered in what is now central and western Turkey 
that at that time was in these five Roman provinces. First Peter chapter one, verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers, that is Jews, where they didn't belong, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, here's what it says about them. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So they were God's elect. Through sanctification of the Spirit, they were born again. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, they were justified. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Then we come over to verse 23 of this first chapter. Chapter 1 and verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. So we can see that three of the phases of salvation were fulfilled in them, that they were elect before the foundation of the world. They were justified and they were regenerated. And then if we back up to verse 22, they were converted. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. That's who we're talking about. When we come to Second Peter chapter 1, it says of them, the same audience in verse 10, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. So we've got the same audience, and in both places it says that they're God's elect, in the second epistle, they need to make that election sure to themselves. It's already sure to God because it's based on the surety and performance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. But we want to know whether we're God's elect. You know, the, the doctrine of election is only frightening until you read what the Bible says about how we can prove it to ourselves that we're God's elect. And 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11 is one of those choice places in the Bible where that specific question is dealt with, how can I know I am one of God's elect? And it's answered right here. It says in verse 10, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. So there is a list of eight things given in verses 5 through 7, starting with faith and ending with charity that are evidences of of a child of God. You can't do those things without being God's elect. It's just a wonderful passage of Scripture. And the reason I'm going over it is because Peter wants us to know as he goes into this third chapter that it's the same audience in both epistles. Because we're going to need that in verse 9 to understand the word usward. Down there in the middle of verse 9, we just want to get that established. And Peter is trying to help us in in his terminology of verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. In both... That is, I use both epistles to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. It is very important for us to review basic truth that we already know. Look at chapter 1 of this second epistle at verse 12. He just gave what I just described, and that is how you can know you're one of God's elect. After having given that, and telling you that if you will do those eight things, it proves that you're you're God's elect, and you will get an abundant entrance into heaven. Because verse 11 describes, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That kingdom that you heard read to you this morning in Daniel chapter 7 is yours by these eight things. You will have an abundant entrance into that 
incredible kingdom that was described in Daniel 7. Right here. Okay. We're working on the word reminding and why it's important in preaching. Look at what Peter did for the next four verses. After laying out that transcendent truth, he says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Now that's an amazing statement. The church was already established in these points of doctrine, and they already knew them, but Peter said, I will not be negligent to keep you reminding you of them. And we need reminders of them, because when we step outside these doors, though we know the truth, and though we be established in the truth, there's nothing else that's going to enter our ears or eyes out there to help us live that truth. And so the purpose of coming together is to be reminded of as much of the Word of God as we can. And that's why we jam so much Scripture into our assemblies. Verse 13, Yea, I think it meet, that means appropriate or fitting, Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle, Peter is saying as long as I'm alive, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. You know, every time we hear the truth, we get excited. Every one of you knew about the second coming of Jesus Christ last Sunday but we sure did get stirred up last Sunday. Right? Because we were reviewing something that there's no reminder outside these walls. Listen, I had one brother come to me at break, one brother come to me after last Sunday while we were still here and said, you know, those nine songs and the nine scriptures that we had in the second service, by number three, I was a bawling, sobbing mess. And I was disappointed that the Lord hadn't come already. Uh, I got so much good feedback from last Sunday, and it's because we were reviewing and reminding ourselves of something that we already know and are already established in, but it tends to slip. It tends to slip. And then we re-embrace it, and it was exciting to be thinking about the Lord coming again. So he says in verse 13, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to be doing this. Verse 14, because he knew he was going to die shortly knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, that's the uh, the tent of his body, the, the temporary dwelling place that we all live in right now, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. That's John chapter 21. Moreover, moreover, in addition to those three verses, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. So these two epistles that I'm writing to you, Jews up there in Turkey, Paul's been your pastor. Paul's been your apostle. Paul established your churches. Paul wrote you epistles. He's going to tell us that in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I want to share with you that I believe the exact same gospel, and I want these things to always be in your remembrance. So let's get back to chapter 3. This is what preaching should do, is put things back before our minds. Verse 2, that ye may be mindful. That's what I want to do today. That you may be mindful of the things that the Lord wants us to remember. There's two kinds of minds right now in this church, and there's two kinds of minds in all saints. There are those that are mindful, or their mind is full of the Word of God. And there are those that mind earthly things. There are Christians, professing Christians, that mind earthly things. Their mind is mostly wrapped up in earthly things. Their jobs their houses, their family, rather than Christ. Christ must be first above all else. 
And they are described in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, as the enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul calls them belly worshipers because they're worshiping the things of this life on this plane that we put in our mouths for our bellies just to enjoy the good life. When we should be looking beyond this life to eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are mindful of the wrong things. We want to be mindful of the right things. And so Peter is saying that, that the reason I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance is to make sure that you're mindful, that you're thinking about the right things. And so I try to serve you that same way today, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Now what subject is under consideration in this context? We are always slaves to context. What is the subject under consideration in 2 Peter chapter 3? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of His coming. It's in verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming? It's in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise of that coming. It's in verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. It is the second coming. And so in verse 2, the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. It's not the book of Leviticus. It's not the book of Leviticus that he wants to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance of how you should treat leprosy when you see the pinkness rising in the scabbing. It's what did the Old Testament say about the second coming of Jesus Christ? Now flip back with me to the first chapter of the first epistle and we will find out there that they knew about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We sometimes believe, and there is internal evidence to believe this, that Job may be the oldest book of the New Testament. It doesn't come first because it has a very different purpose than the historical books that Moses wrote that start our Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But when we go into Job chapter 19 and verse 25, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Do you know that verse? I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that He shall stand in the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall behold with my eyes and not another. That is the resurrection of the dead, and Job wrote that, oh, a long time ago. And he was obviously a prophet, because how could he have known about that if God hadn't given him that prophecy? You're going to drop me down in the ground, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and worms are going to come and get everything that's physically me and carry me off, and a robin's going to get the worm, and a robin's going to put it on your windshield, and you're going to take it to Greenville Car Wash, and that's where I'm going to be. But Jesus is coming back to planet earth. He is going to raise me from the dead, put my body back together, glorify it, and with my eyes, I will behold him. That's Old Testament prophecy. But they don't know as much about it as we do. We know a whole lot more. But they lived with prophecies like that. I'm sorry about the car wash stuff, but I've got to keep you loose a little bit or you'll, it just gets too intense. You know I'll drive home and beat my steering wheel and scream why I said that. I don't need to do it, but I I do like to break the tension. I was taught to do that. I like tension all the time. (laughs) 
My poor wife. I'll be preaching to myself in the second service. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, and 1 Peter chapter 1 is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. From verse 3 all the way to verse 13, it's about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And it goes on, look at, look at the last words of verse 7, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 10, of which salvation, that is, the second coming of Jesus Christ, of which salvation the prophets, that's Old Testament prophets, have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and the glory that should follow, and the glory that should follow is us being in heaven, because it continues on to describe just that. At the revelation of Jesus Christ in the final words of verse 13. So back to Second Peter chapter 3, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets. What Peter is doing to these scattered Jews is explaining to them that what the Old Testament prophets taught and what the New Testament apostles taught was the same doctrine. Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Both of those are the second coming. And you know that we could take the time right now to go through all of Paul's prophecies of the second coming and that would end the first assembly but i'm not going to do that because we did it last lord's day we got those prophecies in we want to get into verse three knowing this first based on what the prophets and the apostles have told us about living in light of the second coming of jesus christ there will be scoffers trying to deny that he's coming back And so you poor scattered Jews are going to be out there. You're already third-class citizens. You're not Gentiles, and you're not pagans. So you're third-class Jewish Christians, which really puts you in a minority. But you hold on to the doctrine that was taught in your Old Testaments and was taught by us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. There's going to be scoffers. They're going to be opening wide their mouths and barking against the promise of His coming. Ignore them. And let me show you how we can ignore them. And so we have verses 3 and 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. These are the false teachers which all of chapter 2 was dedicated toward. 2 Peter chapter 2 was all about false teachers in the New Testament church. There are going to be men coming along that are walking after their own lusts and are going to be trying to tell their congregations that... Baby, now is the time to have your good life. Your good life is now. That's Joel Osteen's book. Your good life is now. I'm thankful that John MacArthur said if that's true, then everybody in John, everybody in Joel Osteen's church is going to hell. Your best life now is the title of his book. Your best life now. That is not true. Our worst life is now. Our best life is coming when we're in heaven. The Bible says if in this life only we have hope in Christ, if we are loving, obedient Christians in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. We have the worst religion ever designed. If in this life only. Because a Christian's life is 
beyond this life. It's in the next life. It's eternal life. Scoffers are going to come following their own lusts and telling people that they can have their best life now. That's following the lusts of your flesh. Our best life is to be spiritually minded in light of the future time that we'll be with Christ. And they're going to say in verse 4, where is the promise of His coming? Where's any evidence that Jesus Christ is going to come back according to His promise? There is nothing to show us that that promise has any validity in history or science or any other discipline. Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. There has been no change since Adam and Eve. There's been no change since Enoch and Methuselah. There's been no change since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's been no change since Moses. The world just continues on. The sun pops up every morning. It goes down every night. The the moon comes out. It runs through its 28-day cycle. Blah, 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 blah. For this, they willingly are ignorant of. The worst ignorance in the world is when you choose to be ignorant and to deny the evidence that exists. This they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. This they willingly are ignorant of. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. So we want verses 5 and 6 now. It's the next step in the lesson. Though those scoffers will say what they say in verses 3 and 4, and though they will try to cast doubt on what you believers believe, and that you know, because the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles both agreed that Jesus is coming back, they're going to try to dissuade you. In the days of the Apostle Paul, according to 2 Timothy 2, there were two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, that said the resurrection was past. They were the first preterists. They said the resurrection was past. Before 70 AD. And Paul had some sweet things to say about them in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. And that is where he taught us to rightly divide the word of truth, because that is verse 15 in that chapter, to rightly divide the word of truth, that we would not be ashamed in our doctrine, but approved of God. And he went on to give us an illustration, two men that had overthrown the faith of Christians. That doesn't mean they lost their names out of the book of life. They just had their faith overthrown and ended up living their lives in hopeless error, that the resurrection was past. Brethren, if the resurrection is past, and this is the new heaven, the new earth, I don't like it. (laughs) sounds so irreverent, but it's not very nice. There's a lot of sin going on, and I've still got this corrupt flesh. I was thinking that the new heaven and the new earth, nothing would die in it, and there would be no more sickness nor death, and there would be no more crying nor weeping. There would be no more pain. There would be no more night. There would be no more sea, and the land would be the light of that place is what I read in the Bible, but I don't see those things. Yes, because we're not in the new heaven and the new earth yet. For this they willingly are ignorant of. Do you know that it is, it is a sin to be without understanding? Amen. When truth is offered to you and you do not believe it and you do not embrace it and you do not imp- apply it to your life, it is to be without understanding. It is a sin in Romans chapter 1 and verse 31. That is a condemnation of all the Gentiles and it is being fulfilled before our very eyes in Romans chapter 1 where God has revealed Himself in the natural creation so that all men of every language are without excuse to know there's a God. 
And yet they're teaching evolution in our schools. So they are going against the knowledge that God made very simple and very plain to all of them right before their very eyes. They get show and tell every day, every night, that there is a God with eternal power and a Godhead. Because they have rejected Him and because they are not thankful, God has rewired their minds and that is why we have sodomy in America in 2015. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 27 teach that very plainly. When men are not thankful for their Creator God and they do not give Him the place of reverence and worship that He should have, He rewires their minds so that their women will, per, will defile themselves with each other and their men will do the same. That is where sodomy comes from. The Bible plainly tells us that. They're willingly ignorant. Intelligent design is absolutely a necessity for the organization and reproductive ability of this creation. And it's order and laws. Intelligent design, we already understand, and anyone with two bits for a brain knows that. The burden of proof is on atheists to prove that there is no intelligent design, which they cannot do. We know there is intelligent design because nothing with the order and the reproductive consequences by breed, by species, cannot be the result of an accident. It is impossible. There isn't even a numerical formula for it. Second of all, we have a supernatural book. It is easy to prove to anybody with a room temperature IQ that the Bible is a supernatural book unlike any other book. Intelligent design plus supernatural book, we absolutely know that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. His name is Jehovah, and He has a son named Jesus, and His son named Jesus is coming for us very soon. It's so simple. The burden of proof is on them. Prove there is no God. It's not on us. Everyone with two bits for a brain know that there is an intelligent designer. God said so. In Romans chapter 1, and we all know that to be a fact. That you don't have an explosion. You can't have an explosion at a newspaper factory and the Oxford English Dictionary arrive packaged in the street. That is quite possible in comparison to this universe resulting by an explosion of chaotic gases and salamanders deciding that they want to be eagles and being able to reproduce themselves into that. Unbelievable. But we want to get off that subject. The ignorance that is a matter of choice is the worst ignorance in the world. You know, when you haven't been taught something, we can have mercy on those ignorant people. We want to meet them, find them, and show them the Word of God and take away their ignorance and give them wisdom, knowledge, and understanding because that's what the Bible is for. But when you choose to be willingly ignorant of all the evidence, and that's what these scoffers were doing, they were saying nothing's changed since the creation of the world. Oh, Peter tended to differ. He said, I think there's an event you're overlooking. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. Where did the heavens come from? The word of God spoke. Let there be light, bang, and there was light. We do believe in the big bang. God said, let there be light, and bang, there was light. Amen. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. Let the, let the earth come up out of the water so that there's dry land. God said it and it happened. The Bible says in John chapter 1, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. We believe all that. The Word of God spoke His Word, and things came into existence. And we can read that, whether it's in the Psalms, we can read it in Genesis, we can read it in John, we can read it in Hebrews. Through faith, we understand Hebrews. Let's try Hebrews on for size. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. So the things which appear, so the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That means things that didn't exist all of a sudden came into existence by the power of God. And that's the only way they could have ever gotten here. There is no other explanation. And the scientific method has never proved a single thing, not even, not even supporting premises for evolution, because they cannot duplicate any of their theories. Charles Darwin knew before he died that what he had said wasn't true. You ought to read a little bit about Charles Darwin before you believe Charles Darwin. You know, just like you ought to read Benjamin Spock's final words in his last couple of years about child training when he admitted that his baby in child care that he had written earlier was a total farce based upon his Darwinian view of things. I wonder why we believe in creation. By the grace of God. Amen. By the grace of God. I want to be a Harvard MBA and be working for Goldman Sachs and deny the Bible, and to deny a creator God, make a million dollars a year in trading bonuses. Is that the good life? That stinks. Let me hump for a ground crew of a tree service for $5 an hour. And know Jehovah God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that God spoke by His Word and brought dry ground out of water, and it was in the water and under the water. That is terra firma of this earth. Verse 6, Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. 1,656 years after creation, God said, Let it rain, and it rained on this earth. Do you know that uh, people back then had never seen rain before? Do you know what the scientific journal said in that day? While Noah preached for 120 years, he was a preacher of righteousness. He told the world to repent because God was going to drown everything that had the breath of life in it. The scientific journals came out and said there's no such thing as rain. It's impossible to rain if all the water vapor that we understand is in the clouds at this time were to be condensed and put on earth, there would only be six inches of water to cover the surface of the earth. And on and on they came. It was in the papers all the time. This crazy nutcase named Noah doesn't know what thing he's talking about. It's never rained. It's never going to rain. Nothing has changed in the 1,656 years that we know about. The last time we talked to Methuselah, who is 965 years old right now, he said he's never seen a drop of rain in his entire life. And so they got all mighty, and they, they wrote their blogs, and they, they encouraged each other, and, and they did their, their high-fiving, man. It ain't going to rain. What a nut. Oh, Matthew, we have failed the world. That's our webmaster. He once was making a little animation. It's not his fault. It's always mine. He has, he has a full-time job and a big family and everything else. We just never settled on how it should finish. 
but he has a family standing there, a husband and a wife and two kids. They're holding hands and they're poking and jeering at Noah getting on the ark. And then he shows this one drop falling and hitting the wife on the arm. And she looks over. <laughs> we have a good webmaster. She looks over and she, husband, what was that? All of a sudden he gets one on the top of his head. They're, oh, I love the thoughts. For this they are willingly ignorant of. They can write all their journals they want to. Stephen Hawking can slobber in his wheelchair. I love to see him in that wheelchair. That is the best he's ever going to have in this world. Wait till he meets the Lord. He ain't going to have a wheelchair. And he's not going to be able to suck the slobber off his lips. He's a demented idiot. He's a devil-possessed liar. And he's getting his heaven right now. It rained. And it rained. And it rained, and every nation on earth that has oral traditions of at least 4,000 years know that there was a worldwide flood. It is geologically provable anywhere you want to go in the world. There was a worldwide flood, and the water went 15 cubits or 22 and a half feet over the highest mountains. And it can be proved any way you want to prove it. And I don't need any of that proof because I believe the Bible. And the Bible is a supernatural book that proves everything I've ever wanted to know about any subject. Elton John does not know about love. Whitney Houston does not know about love. But when the Bible describes love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, in one 15-clause single sentence, I know that this is a supernatural book and by another thousand different reasons. And it's called Why I Believe the Bible is the Word of God preached about 13 years ago. This they willingly are ignorant of. Brethren, I'm not making very good progress in this, but I hope that you're, you're understanding that there is an event coming. Right. And you know, I know the sun came up this morning like it came up the previous morning, like it came up the previous morning, and yes, like it came up the previous morning, and it is probably going to come up like those previous mornings tomorrow morning. And don't you think that that rhythmic faithfulness of Almighty God bringing our solar system into existence according to the rules that He has given it means that these verses are not going to happen. You have never seen fire fall from heaven, and it's not going to be some little meteor. You know, they get nervous when a comet appears within a few light years of Earth, like like it's going to mess things up. You know, it's going to hurt your radio signals. You might not be able to access the Internet quite as fast. Sunspots, they don't know anything about anything. Do you know how long it took them to find Osama bin Laden? Do you know how long it... Do you realize that he was right here on Earth, He's a big physical body that you can't get rid of. He has to breathe air. He has to have food brought to him. They couldn't find him. And they want to tell us about sunspots. And they want to tell us about what happened 13 trillion years ago when a salamander said, I'd rather have wings than feet. They don't know anything about anything. That is why sodomy is the preferred form of sexual expression today. That is why ripping little babies apart in wombs is a mother's love. It's her body, not there's no child there. And on and on it goes, showing the perversity of human nature because God has rewired them and left them destitute of any understanding. And we have all understanding in the Bible if we would learn it, believe it, and obey it. 
the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. You should think about the flood since I did it a few weeks ago because chapter 2 also mentioned the flood. 1 Peter 3 mentioned the flood. Peter liked the flood. 1 Peter 3 mentioned the flood. 2 Peter 2 mentioned the flood. We're getting the flood again right here. You know what I did. Knocking on the pulpit. That is the sound of a waterlogged baby bouncing up against the side of the ark. Instead of us seeing a ramp going up into the ark with animals going in two by two, that is the least important part of Noah's flood. It is actually quite irrelevant. What counts is God slammed the door shut and locked Noah and his family inside that living asylum filled with food and dryness and he drowned the entire planet earth and that is what you ought to think about. You ought to sit in family devotions and talk about water rising in your yard and there are Google pictures that can show you floods in different parts of the world that are very localized but watch that water rise and think about the consequences and the fear and the impossibility of any escape. And so it says, the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Not a single one survived. That is what we need to remember. It is not preached like that. Hardly anywhere anymore. We must preach it that way. We must look at that verse and think about water overflowing. That means it is flowing and it is over you. It is over your house. It is over your chimney. It is over the tall oak tree in your yard. It is over Paris Mountain. It is over. Humanity is over. We borrowed a television when I was a boy. And we watched the old version of A Night to Remember. What boat does that movie title refer to? The Titanic. I remember being a single-digit child, seeing some of my first television, hearing Nearer My God to Thee, being played by that little orchestra, and that Titanic standing up on its end and sliding underwater where if you could survive the suction, it's going to take you down with it, which is highly unlikely, though some did, you would have two minutes in the freezing waters of the North Atlantic. And having my wonderful, loving father who is sitting over here explain to Paul and me about the suction pulling you under, the coldness of the water, the hypothermia, and all the consequences and that was a pretty devastating event, but it's nothing compared to what's coming. Right. But in a little section of that Titanic was a little group of people that had a smartphone. And on the smartphone, they watched Helicopter One of our chief, of our commander in chief, coming 
and it was approaching at enough speed, and it was approaching according to a promise that that little group of people was going to be delivered from the Titanic. And so they ran up to the highest end as that Titanic stood up to slide into the water, and there was Helicopter One and picked them off and saved every single one of them. There is a flood of fire. Come, Listen, forgive my... Remember, I've told you, I'm not good at illustrations, and I don't want to be. But the whole world drowned, but eight were in the ark. The whole world is going to get burned up. This, this is what this is about. The whole world is going to get burned up, but Jesus Christ is coming back, and we can see it on our GPS because the prophecies are being fulfilled before our eyes just as He promised they would be, and everything is in line that the Lord Jesus Christ will soon appear and He will save every single one of us. We are gathered into the high end of the Titanic. We are in this little room today to encourage each other in this fact and to run to the highest point we have to give the Lord the benefit to come and save all of us. And that is for us to repent and to turn from our foolishness and to turn toward His righteousness in every part of our lives and to embrace each other You know, the other night in bed, just a couple of nights ago, listen, we're a morbid couple and we love being morbid. If you want to call us morbid, a couple nights ago, I was holding Sherry and she said, this is like that couple in the Titanic that instead of standing on deck, they were both old, they were both very wealthy. They went down into their room and got into their bed and held each other. And she said, That's what I feel like because we've been talking about the second coming and the judgment of the Lord coming. We're just going to hold each other and shout hallelujah. Amen. But we're not going to do it just the two of us. We've got an extraction party planned for this afternoon to extract another believer. And we're here as a church. And the reason we've had this service is to make you mindful of the words of the holy prophets of the Old Testament and the commandment of the apostles of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the word that spoke this world into existence, the word that caused terra firma to come up out of the water on which we are sitting right now, that word sent a flood that destroyed the world. All things are upheld by that word, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, and that word is going to speak and withhold His grace and mercy from this universe, and it will be incinerated according to verses 10 through 14 of this chapter. You say, I don't want to to have any part of it. Okay, then we close with these words. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Same subject, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the great difference that will occur when He comes. Do you know what our GPS is telling us? that Helicopter One is on its way, it's the Word of God. And it's our Commander-in-Chief, and it's not President Obama. It's the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Would you like to know any other of His titles? He's the Blessed and Only Potentate. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the Prince of the Kings of this world. Second Thessalonians, and I end with these words. Verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, 
when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Is the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God? Is he the only Savior from sin? If you believe on him in such a way that it changes your life, you will be, in verse 10, admiring and glorifying the Lord Jesus. And if you want to reject that information, if you want to reject that knowledge about him, then you will be in verses 7 through 9 where you belong. Let every man hear the word of God and humble themselves before it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.